and welcome to InfoLinks on the Record. We're broadcasting live from Arma in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Curtis, your host, and with me as always is Olivia Winkler. And today we're speaking to Dave Jones. Dave is the VP of Marketing for AO Docs and also a member of the AIM Board of Directors and also has an accent, which we'll get into. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Kurt. It's not much of an accent, really, is it? It's a bit, and we'll see if people can figure out if it's British, Australian, South American. Sounds good. Let's <laughs> tease them, see what they figure out. So, tell us first about AODOCS. What is AODOCS? What do you guys do that's unique within the information governance space? Sure, so AODOCS is one of the new breed of document management, enterprise content management, content services platforms, call it what you want. Yeah. We're one of the new breeds. So we're a completely SaaS-based or cloud-based offering. And we're the only offering that's built directly on top of the Google Drive and G Suite platform. Oh, okay, so that's definitely unique. Absolutely, and it, it's one of those things that so many people have moved across to G Suite and to G Drive and really looked at that from a, an operational point of view, you know, moving from legacy repositories on-premise to the cloud without necessarily thinking about all of the good old-fashioned things that you still need to do with that content. Yeah. Things like mm -hmm. auditing and making sure that it's compliant and secure, dropping workflows on top, being able to configure applications on top of it. That's exactly what we drop on top of that Google platform I to see. allow people to do that. And so where is home? Home for me is a little place called Hereford in the UK. Okay. So it is a British accent, <laughs> albeit slightly messed up. <laughs> and help us find that on the map. Help us find that on the map. So I am pretty much directly in the middle of three cities in the UK. So Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales. Okay. Birmingham, which is, I think, Britain's second city. And Bristol. So I am right on the border between England and Wales. A oh, very okay. picturesque part of the world. Sure. The Orchard of England. I've done that drive, the orchard. What kind of, I'm picturing apples in an orchard. What yep. kind of things are in your orchard? Apples. And then I know pears, of course. To the north is sheep, right? Uh, yeah, to the north, to the west, to the east, and to the south. There's, there's a lot of sheep where I live, yeah. So then also you're on the AIM board of directors. So Correct. how did you come to be involved in that? So AIM and I go back a long way. So uh, I ran my own document management company in the early 2000s. Oh, really? And early 2000s? So early that was 2000s. Uh, early days. Very early days. I built a 2002 equivalent of Box or Dropbox, if you like. Sure. It was probably 10 years too early. Before uh, any of those things existed. Before any of those things existed in the wrong part of the world with not enough marketing funding. But it was a good learning experience. So how did you come to create that application? What was the driver? I, it was slightly bizarre. I was working for a practice management company. So a company that was serving accountants and uh -huh. consultants with time and fees and billing software. Yeah. And traveling all around the UK, it became clearly obvious to me that those guys needed some form of document management. So I took it on myself to go and build that for them and spent about six months creating it and the next seven years selling it uh, across the UK. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that led me to AIM. 
so obviously AIM was around, well AIM's been around since 1930 I think it is. Something that was in the era of John Mancini? That was in prime. the era of John Mancini, absolutely. So I, I started advertising with AIM back in the early 2000s, then actually joined them in, oh, right? I think it was 2012, okay. as a market analyst. So all of the reports that we know and love that come out of AIM, I was responsible for a lot of those in and around things like big data, SharePoint, capture systems. That was stint number one with AIM. I went back again and actually ran their European operation for around about 18 months. Uh, because they're primarily seen as a U.S. organization sure. and a U.S. association, but they've actually got a massive footprint in Europe and Asia-Pacific and beyond. So my job was really to, to strengthen that network yeah. and well, to and grow that network. I know as, as I was kind of come up, coming up in the industry, I found that Britain, Europe were actually more forward-thinking in terms of going electronic, managing down to the, the document level, getting into a process flow. So I'd go over there and see things that we were just, you know, talking conceptually about over here. We're kind of set in our ways and uh, interesting how they evolved kind yeah. of different states of maturity. It is, and I think that flipped a little bit, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago as, as the US was starting to discuss and starting to move to the cloud. The UK and Europe maybe lagged behind a little bit, so it wasn't quite on as, the as leading side. edge. Uh, probably not on the technology side, just on the adoption side of things. I see. So, okay. as you know, there, there are numerous different geographies at play, different languages at play within Europe, all yeah. of whom have their own sovereignty, rules, and desires. So trying to create that one common cloud environment across all of those different territories proved to be a, a, a challenge. They're getting there now, uh -huh. but it's taken them a little bit longer than the US. So then with AODOCS, how are you guys split between the US, abroad? Sure. Do you look at them as different markets or is it all? So actually AODOCS as a company was founded in Paris. So nice. we, okay. we hopped the pond initially to San Francisco found that actually keeping staff in San Francisco was a challenge. Yeah. So we're now headquartered in Atlanta. Really? But still with offices in San Fran, in Paris, and also in Milan. So we've got a nice balance in the sense that we've got staff that have come from Europe to the US. We've got staff from the US that have gone to Europe. Okay. Uh, we've got a really good understanding of the different markets that are at play. But yeah, they are absolutely not even two different markets. You've got the US market, and then you have the multiple European markets that each have their own, let's call them nuances. So, as an expert in the Google business environment, since so many people are familiar with the, you know, growing up in Microsoft Office, that paradigm, what are some of the differences? What do you point to as people are looking at something that's probably, you know, going against the, the grain, yeah, I think that there's a number of different ways to look at that, right? So, you have people now that are growing up on Android devices. Yeah. And Android devices are, are primarily the Google style of interface. So, for those guys to try and shoehorn a Microsoft Office app onto those devices that looks different, feels different, sure. there's, there's almost a, a reticence for some of those people using those devices to go back 
into the Microsoft style of things. So those guys have grown up using Google and, and that's their default. I think what we also find is just the integrated aspect of all of the different solutions. So the fact that you can be in Gmail, which of course is a free application, and directly share a document that you've been working on in Google Sheets or in Google Docs, that you've actually been collaborating on real time with somebody 100% in the cloud without ever downloading anything to your Mac or to your, to your PC. Well, in, I think that uh, Gmail is probably in the Google suite what people are most familiar with. That's their, their introduction, and I'd imagine that most of us probably work in, in office during the day, but on the personal side, we're all in Gmail. Absolutely, and, and what we're finding is that, you know, Google are a huge company. They're very aggressive from an R&D perspective. They're, they're coming out with some fantastic advances in terms of vision and artificial intelligence and the things that they can do with content once it's stored in their ecosystem. But I think they've been very clever. They position themselves as a platform and they are very firmly staying as a platform. They want people to build on top of that platform. They want yeah. people to, to use them as the foundation. They're not necessarily, certainly not from what I'm seeing at the moment, looking to deliver a huge amount of end user applications. They're happy for companies like AODocs to bring a level of domain expertise, if you like, drop it on top of that platform and instantly get you know, massive amounts of value for the customers. And from our perspective, it sounds slightly trite, but it means that we haven't got to build maybe 70, 80% of the document management application because it's actually already there. So compared to Microsoft Azure, AWS, what's sort of the Google platform and paradigm for that? It's pretty much exactly the same from a delivery mechanism. I think Google is now the, the third biggest platform behind those, those two very well-known ones. I think Google are taking a very vertical-focused approach to growing their business, though. So they pick a particular vertical or two or three verticals within the year and commit to learning everything that they can about that vertical, learning yeah. how that platform needs to be tweaked and adapted to deliver as well as it can within healthcare or within financial services or government or whatever those happen to be. But they also are very careful to identify the partners that they want to work with, the companies like AODocs that can come in and not just help the end user, but also obviously help Google grow their business within that part of the market. Yeah. So then coming back to your involvement in AIM, and we were together uh, at Microsoft last week for the, the AIM Council. So what things have you seen being a part of that group and the, the dynamics of working with other solution providers? So I think from the perspective of, the, of that leadership council session, that's, I look forward to that every year. I've been doing this now probably for about seven or eight years. And because I'm based in the UK, I get to go to the UK events. But because I'm in the, on the board, I get to go to the US event, so I, I double oh, I up see. with these. I love going to them. They're probably one of the few times in the year when you can just sort of turn your phone off, turn your laptop off, and just fully engage your brain. Yeah. And your cerebral cortex to think about things with other people in a similar situation to you 
coming from different backgrounds, from different industries, from different vendors, different end users, and, and really just get in there trying to figure out some of the, the challenges that we face in the industry today. I mean, we've tackled topics from big data to what does a digital workplace look like? How do we try and enable IT practitioners to be of more value to the business? You know, really tangible, important topics that actually hopefully make a difference to the people that read the reports and read the collaterals that come out of the end. So to that end, what are the major industries that you focus on? So you mentioned how Google is being very vertical. Are you guys vertical as well? Do you know what? We have customers across every single industry that you could possibly think of. We have customers such as the World Wildlife Fund, for okay. example. Whirlpool, who are a domestic appliance manufacturer. We have the Cabinet Office in the UK managing their, their policies and procedures. Working uh, on the Brexit Working thing. on the Brexit thing. Let's not go there. Please don't go there. But we are, are starting to narrow down and focus heavily on a per industry play, if that makes sense. So while the platform, very similar to Google, right? While the platform is applicable across the board, yeah. you have to specialize, you have to put certain effort in to make a solution for a particular vertical. So we've just launched AO Docs for Life Sciences, okay. for example, which takes quality management mm -hmm. within life sciences and healthcare, applies that through FDA certification and accreditation, and then has continuous validation there. So one of the, the weird things about quality management systems is that once you've got the system to FDA levels, yeah. you have to continuously prove so that your system's- CFR part 11. Exactly, and, you know. exactly. So we've got a, a cloud-based system which not only allows you to get to that compliance, but continuously validates against that that's built using the Google interface. So, okay. so one of the big challenges that people have within life sciences is user adoption. So you know you, you can build it, you can get it approved against the compliance, but then the users hate it. Yeah. So it completely defeats the purpose. But given that we're putting it in an interface that they're already familiar with, that they already love, it makes life an awful lot easier. So what are some of the tools within the Google portfolio so we talked about Gmail, Google Drive. What are some of the, the tools that the average user, especially someone who's not using it on the, the business side yet, may not be aware of? You know, I think the G Suite tools, so the equivalent of Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, are things that people know about but don't really use until they start using them, yeah. and then they never stop using them. You know, the way in which you can real-time collaborate on, on documents with change streams and comments and notes and, and live editing. That's something that if you haven't used, I would thoroughly encourage you to use. Beyond that, Google has got hundreds of little tools and applications that, that they're, they're constantly in beta and rolling these things out. That, you know, things like Google Translate, mm. which does real-time translation sure. of, of any foreign language. We're starting to look at using something called Google Vision, which basically is an AI that gets applied to images and video and creates meta tags based on that. So if you think old style OCR yeah. used to extract 
the information off of a document. Well, this is taking things off of a picture. So if it was to take a picture of me and, and pass it through Google Vision, Lord knows what would come back, but let's be polite, you know, <laughs> male, dark hair, blue shirts, that sort of thing. But to a level of detail that a human would never bother to sit there oh, and key in. So these things are adding just a level of understanding to your content that's never been there before. And the really nice thing is that all of these are tied together. All of these different tool sets combine and feed off of each other. So I know they really are opening up a lot of their AI technology that they're developing and giving solution providers the ability to apply those tools. So I'd imagine in document management, auto classification, what areas are you seeing where that may have some relevance? Yeah, so, so for me there are three areas where AI plays within content management full stop. So the one is really that auto classification. So replacing maybe the OCRs of the past, replacing human classification, and really taking, you know, if an invoice comes in, being able to look at that, figure out firstly that it's an invoice, yeah. pull out the supplier, the purchase order number, all of the, the regular stuff. That, for me, if I'm being brutally honest, is a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Yeah. You know, we have solutions for that already that have worked very well for years, you know, 98% efficiency on these sort of things. It's difficult to get a huge step improvement on that. The next area where this comes in is what we talked about earlier, you know, looking at images and videos and using AI to understand those. And, and even something as simple as claims management in insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, being able for Dorothy, who's just had a, a, an RTA, to be able to send in her dash cam footage straight to her insurer and the insurer's AI to skim through 45 hours worth of dash cam footage to come back with a 30 second clip of the accident yeah. instantly is just adding so much value both to Dorothy but also to the insurer. I was watching the game, it was the Chargers, you know, three point difference in the game, they had scored but then they found out, you know, he was down before it crossed the line and they must have run the replays on the next five plays to see if they broke the plane, they got in the end zone, and every time, because they had the ability to do the replay, they found out, and that's how the game ended. <laughs> Just a lot of watching of replays. So the technology now that you know we're taking something as live action as you can get, as non-technical, and now it's all about the technology and how many different angles we yep. can break it down and look at. And I think that's a really interesting segue because it describes where we're at with AI at the moment. So the technology is there for the referee never to need to make that decision. Yeah. The AI can look at the, all of those angles instantly and tell you yes or no. But we still need we feel the need to put the referee in control of that yeah. because we don't trust the AI yet. And that's where a lot of business is up. And it's a really interesting dilemma. And we're, we're getting to the stage now with some of the more advanced AIs where industries have gotten over that need to be in control, but what they want is an AI that will justify itself. 
So in that NFL instance, you know, yeah. to be able to say, actually, here's the shot that gives me inconclusive evidence that that ball was or wasn't over the line. And it's almost the sort of the validated AI results that I think are really interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that having to trust the AI. Like I know right now some US cities are piloting these self-driving cars and the companies are saying they're safer than a real car because every time a driverless car learns something, every driverless car connected to that one in the cloud or however they're connected learns the same thing. And basically you get this mass learning of all these machines that can respond faster than people can. But people themselves, like the perception, civilians don't want to share the road with a driverless car. They, it feels to them unsafe, even though the AI can respond faster than humans, it learns faster than humans. And it's like you said, it's more reliable. There's a couple of interesting parallels there because you're absolutely right. And if you think back to the early days of automation, you know, it was all about robot, and it still is to a degree, robots removing human jobs and yep. whatnot. And I don't know if either of you have ever scanned documents in bulk. Oh, you sure. Know, I did a week's worth of scanning in bulk. One, never again. <laughs> but the reality is that by the end of that week, by the end of the first day even, the quality of my categorization and, and tagging was nowhere near as good as it was on the first document yeah, that I scanned. A lot of monotonous, repetitive. And you know, you don't get that with self-driving cars, you know, because you don't get that human element. And right, what's the saying to err is human? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the problem. Right? Interesting. If you're working with an AI, then you don't get that issue in the first place. AIs can't get tired. AIs don't get tired. Nope. So how does someone in Britain, outside of London, become an NFL fan? That's a really good question. So, a couple of things kicked off. So, in the UK, trying not to date myself here, but when I was about 15, let's say, the NFL was really big in the UK. So, the Raiders were all the rage, the Bears were all the rage. It was the time when William Perry was sure. coming over, oh, the, French yeah, the French came French. over to the yeah. UK. And I, I just fell in love with the fact that a game's never dead. Were they playing games over there yet? They, or was that they just, were playing uh, a couple of exhibition them? games. Yeah. You know? And then a couple of years after that, I did my first sort of industrial training as part of a gap year at university and had was lucky enough to come over to Dallas to do some work and watch the Cowboys game in Dallas when I was there. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. And just fell in love with the whole thing. And don't get me wrong, I, I still enjoy a good soccer game. Sure but I've now been to probably about five times as many NFL games as English Premier League oh, games. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And now we have a bit of the opposite where soccer, football is becoming more of a spectator sport. Everyone grows up, their kids playing, but now to, to follow Premier League and other teams, it's still not anywhere near the what it is in Europe and other countries but it's trending in that direction. Absolutely, well the world's getting smaller, right? That's the long and the short of it. You know, I can be in the UK watching a, an NFL game. In London, I was there 10 days ago watching the, the Panthers beat the Bucks. But then the week before, I was in Atlanta watching Atlanta United play soccer against it was Salt Lake City. Mm. You know, it, all of our sports, all of our culture, 
everything is becoming global. Absolutely. And certainly with the work that you're doing. So how international outside the, the US, Great Britain, how far do you guys go around uh, the, the globe? About as far as we can go. So we have customers in Australia, in South America, in Asia Pacific, obviously North America, Canada, right across. So language the UK, is not Europe. a barrier. Language is, is not a barrier. In fact, some of the customers that we have, we can barely communicate with them, but they are quite happy using the software and, and getting on with it. So we're here at the ARMA conference. We've talked about AIM, your background there. What are you seeing in the ARMA community and what's your, your history and experience been with this organization? So my history with ARMA is very, very limited, I'll be honest. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm here is to learn a lot more about them. I know Nick Inglis very well. He and I worked at AIM together in the past and we keep in regular contact. We just did a, a podcast with him earlier today. So There you uh, go, yeah. fantastic. I, I'll name drop him, no, no problem <laughs> there at all. But you know, we talked about AI earlier and for me, records management is one of the places where AI can have a massive, massive impact. I've talked to so many people who are trying to get on top of their records management backlog and just using an AI to help them with that. And I had a really interesting chat with a guy probably about six months ago. He said he had industrial drawings, thousands of industrial drawings that he needed to go through and figure out if they needed to be archived and marked as records. And we started talking about AI and I said, so you want an AI to go in and tell you which ones you need to mark as records? He said, no. Not at all. I want an AI to go in and get rid of the 90% that I don't need oh. to mark as a record. Interesting. So that I can focus on the ones that I do need. Yeah. Which is a complete pivot on what you normally see. Mm -hmm. But it's a really simple way. Without using AI to do classification at all, just get it to recognize what potentially should and should be marked as a record. So to wrap up then, and you've talked about so much of where things are going. What are some things that are around the corner that maybe other people aren't seeing that you could share with us? Well, you know, it's funny because 2020 is coming up, right? It's the end of a year, start of it, not, not just a new year, but a new decade. Yeah. But one of the things that strikes me is, you know, from a technology point of view, the future's already here, right? The challenge is that old technology isn't letting go that easily. So you've got legacy tech that's yeah. out there that people can't get rid of. Legacy tech that looks horrible, is incredibly difficult to use, doesn't talk to anything else, but is still running within a business. And because it's gonna be a complete pain in the backside to move away from that system, people are still using it. We've got SharePoint 2010, which is coming to its end of life in October of 2020. That's 10 year old technology. Yeah. I mean, think about your mobile phone. Would you be seen dead using a 10 year old mobile phone? Probably yeah, wouldn't exactly. even work. Would you drive a 10 year old car? So why do we trust our businesses with technology that, I mean, I pick on SharePoint 2010, but there are several other tools that are actually older than that. You know, this is 15, 20 year old technology. 
that we're expecting to be as agile and reactive and dynamic as we want our businesses to be. Yeah. It can't. We've got to get over that, the legacy chains that are wrapped around our ankles. And for me, 2020 is a perfect time to do that spring cleaning and, and look forward to a new decade with a, a completely brand new technological outlook. Very exciting. Dave, I appreciate you sharing all your insights and background. It's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you.